We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you. You're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Ellis. Well, good morning. It is Tuesday, October 17th, and we are awaiting the noon Eastern time vote for Speaker of the House of Representatives after the ouster of Kevin McCarthy. So Steve Scalise has dropped out as of last week. And so the only person up for vote right now is Jim Jordan. And I've been getting a ton of text messages. I mean, all of the political consultant groups obviously have my phone number from from years ago. So I've been getting all the text messages saying, call your congressman, support Jim Jordan. And uh, they're making a push. We tried to get uh, our friend Jim Jordan on this morning, but obviously he is doing a lot uh, to win that 217 vote. So uh, he will hopefully join us later in the week, regardless of how the vote goes. Uh, But a lot of people are supporting him. I think he would be a fantastic Speaker of the House. Um, I think it's personally going to be very to get to 217 and my uh, my opinion and of course this is speculation and we we could see a full uh, whip count and in just the first round Jim Jordan get to that 217 that would be incredible it would be amazing uh, but I think uh, just based on sources that I've talked to on the hill that the reason they're calling for the noon vote today is to put on the record those members in the Republican caucus that are not going to support Jim Jordan. Right now, everything has been behind closed doors. And uh, so no one really knows other than the people who have come out and openly endorsed and said that they will support Jordan. Uh, We don't really know who or how many are not going to vote for him. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see in that first round if he makes it all the way there. Uh, You'll recall back in January, uh, Kevin McCarthy took 15 rounds to get to the 217 number, and that came with a lot of concessions that ultimately was his downfall because he agreed to allow that motion to vacate the chair uh, by just one member, and then uh, the vote happened, and the entire uh, Democrat coalition, along with a few Republicans, ousted him. So uh, will Jordan make any such concessions if the rounds continue? Well, that's politics, and that's definitely possible. So we'll see what happens. But interestingly, and this is part of the reason that I think that it's going to be difficult for Jordan to get to 217, is because our other good friend, um, and we have many good friends in Washington, I'm happy to say, um, there are some stalwart conservatives still, even if we uh, we tend to not be that impressed with what, you, what goes on in Washington. Uh, but our other good friend, Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana, confirmed yesterday 
that he would run for Speaker of the House if Jim Jordan should fail to land the necessary 217 House Republican votes. So there was a piece in, I believe it was NBC, uh, on Sunday that had highlighted that, and Mike Johnson confirmed that yesterday. I do think that he will support Jim Jordan, and uh, he will only launch his bid, my understanding is, um, he will only launch that if Jim Jordan fails to land the necessary 217 votes. But the fact that he's confirming that as of yesterday afternoon uh, tells me that probably the Republican leadership are concerned that Jordan uh, may fail to land the necessary 217 votes, and so they need uh, a, a backup and someone who is waiting in the wings to then come out so that um, not only do we get a Speaker of the House, which is eminently necessary, we've needed this for a while, and you're hearing Todd and Copper um, in the background giving their, their commentary, my two little puppies, they're so great. Um, but we need someone who is who is waiting to step up and uh, take the mantle of leadership if Jim Jordan doesn't get this. Uh, the Republicans, of course, have... Uh, been been cast in the media as uh, not knowing what they're doing, uh, you know, being divisive, all of these other things. And it's an easy attack from the Democrats. Uh, once we get a speaker and move forward, I don't think that this uh, this time period of having a vacant chair is really going to be that big of an issue uh, moving forward into the general election um, in 2024 in uh, various uh, seats other than, I mean, certainly not for the presidential election, but um, it could come up in, in a few of the hotly contested seats uh, that are up for uh, re-election in, in 2024. Um, so we'll see how that goes. But, um, but in terms of Jim Jordan and Mike Johnson, both of them are, are men that I know very well. Um, I've worked with. Um, I, I got to know uh, really well initially during the first impeachment of President Trump. And um, <laughs> this is a little bit of inside baseball there, but um, there was a group of us that included both of those representatives that um, we kind of tongue-in-cheek nicknamed the Avengers. And uh, we were some that, uh, that not only uh, were part of the legal team um, in terms of uh, both of them were house managers in terms of defending uh, President Trump, but uh, also in terms of my representation, I was part of the legal team that um, then went on media, defended uh, President Trump for that first impeachment. So I uh, got to know both of them um, and also uh, former Representative Mark Meadows uh, really well at that time. He was still in the House of Representatives, um, had not yet become uh, chief of staff. That would happen after the not guilty verdict and then right before um, ultimately the the 15 days to slow the spread, and then you know the rest of that history. So um, so both of them, I think, are excellent in terms of their character, their commitment to conservatism, um, their overall leadership, uh, what they have done for the American people, the conservative cause, uh, their ability to fundraise. I mean, all of these things that are important in terms of whipping votes, um, all of those things. Um, if I am totally honest, and I think that Jim Jordan – uh, would be fantastic. I do think that Mike Johnson is less polarizing. Um, that may be an advantage. And again, they're not going head to head. So, you know, this this really is is a matter of let's see how Jordan does. And if he gets there, great. If not, um, then my message today is take heart and it will be okay because uh, Mike Johnson is planning to launch that bid, right? So Mike Johnson, I think, has a better likelihood of getting to 217 
because he is a principled conservative. He's not a member of the Freedom Caucus, which is intentional so that that isn't held against him in terms of leadership. He has been a vice chair of uh, the Republican leadership in the House um, for years, and that has uh, led to a lot of respect. And he isn't as polarizing as Jim Jordan in terms of how uh, the Republican caucus views him. And he also has the credentials as the former RSC chair. So um, for several people on the Hill that I have talked to, um, they have said that he is their choice. And that may be a reason that uh, and I'm telling Mr. Copper here to not uh, put his little commentary on air, but that's okay. <laughs> They're playing down here and it's great. If you want to see them, by the way, go to, you can go to Instagram, two dudes, uh, two spelled out and then dudes for many golden doodles, D O O D S underscore copper and Todd and, uh, see them playing and, uh, I'll give them a toy here. But, um, but as I was saying, the, uh, there are several people on the Hill that have said that they may, uh, end up not voting for Jordan so that they can uh, ultimately vote for Mike Johnson. So how that actually plays into all this, we will see as of noon. Uh, but I think that either way, um, and I've openly supported Jim Jordan, I've also said as of the day that the, the uh, speaker's chair was vacated, I actually said on that day that Mike Johnson was my first choice, um, even before he's announced, and this was several weeks ago. So obviously I support both. I think either would be great. Um, so do not let your heart be troubled if Jim Jordan should fail to land the necessary 217. All right, so in the last few minutes in this first segment, I also wanted to take some time to address uh, the issue of Israel from a biblical worldview perspective, because um, a lot of listeners have asked about um, the the war going on in Israel, and is this a fulfillment of biblical prophecy? And my response to that, and you should know with any Christian that you're talking to, what is their perspective on eschatology or the end times, the end of all things, as, as my pastor uh, likes to say. And eschatology is one of those areas um, that is the study, of course, of the end times that um, from the perspective of soteriology, which is the study of salvation or the knowledge of um, how to come into salvation, um, we can have different perspectives on eschatology, and that doesn't impact soteriology. Um, there is only a one way to become saved and come into a knowledge of um, of Christ and to accept him as Messiah, as Lord and Savior. Um, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So there, um, there are essentials of the faith that we would, as a broad uh, Christian worldview, say are fundamental that you can't be a Christian and you cannot be saved without believing in certain things. For example, um, you have to believe that Jesus is Lord. Uh, you have to believe that um, he physically came to earth in um, human form, fully divine, fully man, and uh, paid the punishment in a literal uh, death and then resurrection three days later. Um, so these are essentials of the faith. But when we're talking about eschatology and the end times, that is debatable. Why? Because it hasn't happened yet. And so we are doing the best that we can uh, as Christians, and we should, to understand end times, understand uh, what biblical prophecy uh, says, what prophecy has already been fulfilled. And it's not just about the book of Revelation. It's also Old Testament prophets like Daniel um, 
in Daniel chapter 9 and also in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that talks about the end times and then also the book of Revelation. So I am a pre-tribulation dispensational theologian in terms of my eschatology. So I believe that the book of Revelation is a literal historical event. Um, I believe that God is the author of all things. Uh, told us how the world began, how he created. If you get Genesis 1 through 3 wrong, you're probably going to get a lot wrong. Um, I believe in a in a literal six-day creation. On the seventh day, God rested. And then I believe in a literal uh, revelation. And so in a an actual second coming, as uh, the Bible prophesies, as Jesus promised his disciples, and I also believe that God is the author of all things, told us how he created. He told us the beginning, in the beginning, God. And then he told us, like an author does, the end of the story. He gave us the complete story. So that's also why we believe in a closed canon, that there is no new special revelation. Um, The the Bible is sufficient. It's inerrant. And uh, these are a part of, of what we believe in terms of theology. And so... Um, so in terms of whether this right now is the fulfillment of in times biblical prophecy and Magog as Ezekiel 38 and 39, my view, um, just because verse 14 says, therefore, the son of man prophesy and say, Gog, thus says the Lord God on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north and you and many peoples with you. And it goes on to talk about the first war. I think there are two wars very clearly in those two chapters. And because it talks about Israel dwelling safe, safely in the land, they're not currently dwelling safely. When will that happen? That will happen after the rapture when the Antichrist comes, makes that covenant with Israel, and there is peace in the land, and that is the rise of the one world government. That will be when Israel is dwelling safely, and that is during the seven-year tribulation that is forecast in Revelation. So in terms of this actually being the beginning of Gog and Magog, I don't see that in my reading of Scripture. Um, But I also would say that we always have to be very careful and considered to look in scripture and understand biblical prophecy, biblical history as well. If we understand world history as it's paralleled with the accurate account of biblical history, then we will understand the things to come. And the rapture could happen at any moment because biblical prophecy has been fulfilled that Israel came back as a nation in 1947. That was something that was prophesied, and that had to happen before the rapture could take place and the start of the seven-year tribulation. So the biggest question for Christians is, are you prepared today if the rapture happened today? Do you know biblical prophecy? Do you know what you believe in terms of eschatology? These things are incredibly important. We can't just have passion for God and love for God. We need to know God as well. We need to be theologians and study the Bible daily and know what we believe, why we believe it. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. So we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. I'd like to take a minute to have a heart-to-heart with you. If you're able, place your hand over your heart. Can you feel it? My strong heartbeat reminds me that I'm alive. See, it's the same for an unborn baby. Their heart begins to form at conception and at just three weeks is already beating. At five weeks, a baby's heartbeat can be heard on an ultrasound. 
That's where Preborn steps in, rescuing 200 babies every day from abortion simply by providing a mother with a free ultrasound and allowing her to hear her child's heartbeat and see their perfectly formed body in the womb. By six weeks, eyes are forming. By 10 weeks, a baby is able to suck his or her thumb. Preborn needs our help to save these precious souls. For just $28, you could be the difference between the life or death of a baby. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby. Or donate securely at preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And we are still, of course, talking about Israel and the conflict that is going on uh, between Hamas and Hezbollah and Israel. And uh, joining me now is my good friend Josh Hammer, who is the senior editor at large at Newsweek and host of The Josh Hammer Show, good friend of our show as well. And uh, Josh, first, um, you are Jewish, and my sincere condolences to um, to you and uh, to just this heartbreak of everything that is going on in Israel. And I know that you wrote a column that you uh, tweeted out just a couple days ago that said, this is one of the more difficult columns I've written, but it is one of the most important. So thank you for coming on and uh, speaking about these things. Jenna, I appreciate it. It's it's been brutal. I'm not going to pretend like it's been anything other than brutal, but we have to move on. Life goes on, and it's always a pleasure to join you, at least. Yeah, and um, and, and I really appreciate that. And so in terms of your perspective, um, your opinion piece is titled, The People of Israel Live. And I love the hope in that, the, um, the steadfastness. And so um, just in general, what has been your perspective from the start of this conflict and then what you have seen in terms of the response from Israel and also the United States. Well, look, so I, 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 I am Jewish. I'm also engaged to an Israeli woman. Our, our wedding is coming up in two months. Um, most of her family is in Israel, including her oldest brother, who lives in a town called Netivot, which is in southern Israel, maybe five, six miles at the most from the Gaza border. So you, you, so you can imagine um, how, how stressful this was for, for us, for many of us, when all of this went, went down. Thank God her, her family is all okay, although pretty much all of her cousins who are in the relevant age range have been called up from the reserves. I mean, this is the country's first all-out war in, in, in 50 years since the Yom Kippur War of 1973. So Look, I mean, thus far, at least over the first week thus far, I will say that I was pleasantly surprised by Joe Biden and by mainstream Democrats, at least as it pertains to Hamas and to Gaza. I, I have not seen anything from this administration on the broader picture, which is getting into Iran, because you obviously don't don't have Hamas unless you have Iran. Hamas for years and years has been funded primarily by Iran, as well as Qatar, which is a very problematic country. Qatar is a small and duplicitous country. It's extraordinarily wealthy. They have a massive influence operation in Washington, D.C. They also fund Islamism and radical jihadism all throughout the world. The Hamas leadership doesn't actually live in Gaza. They actually live in five-star luxury hotels in Doha, Qatar. And the administration has done absolutely nothing when it comes to that piece of the puzzle. But They've been okay thus far when it when it comes to Gaza. What I fear, Jenna, what I really fear 
is that you are, are you're already starting to see calls for a ceasefire from the far left of the Democratic Party, the, the Hamas caucus, the Jihad Squad in the U.S. House Representatives, the Cori Bush AOCs, Rashida Tlaibs, that merry band of, of leftists, pro-Hamas idiots, they're already calling for a ceasefire. I mean, we, sh- we should be very clear at this point what a call for a ceasefire and an end to hostilities right now at this point means. That means that you are okay with letting a medieval Islamist genocidal death cult like Hamas, which is indistinguishable from ISIS or al-Qaeda. These are, these are all one and the same. These are the most fundamentalist, militant, terrorist forms of, of Sunni Islam that you will ever find. To call for a ceasefire now is to let folks who committed the bloodiest pogrom, the bloodiest mass slaughter against the Jews since Hitler and the Nazis were alive 80 years ago, to let them off with utter impunity, and then to just let them kind of just gear up and rearm and to do it all over again. So what I re- that is really what I fear. Now, America, all America has to do, it, it's very simple, honestly, just don't do anything. That is literally all the Israelis are asking from the United States right now, is just to stand up to the sidelines and don't mess it up. Israel has a very capable military. There's going to be a complicated mission in Gaza. It's going to get even more precarious if Hezbollah gets in from Lebanon. But the Israeli military is very good. All they need is for the United States to not put pressure for a premature ceasefire and to stay out of the way. And that is really what I'm starting to fear right now is how that tide could potentially be turning. But God willing, um, you know, Israeli leadership will stay strong. And hopefully President Biden doesn't decide to put pressure on too prematurely. So what should Congress do then, in your opinion, in terms of the potential talks of aid packages and um, some of those things, especially as some uh, some conservatives are seeing how much aid was given to Ukraine and now they're wanting uh, not something similar in terms of that much, but they're wanting to see aid to Israel? Well, uh, look, I mean, for a, for times of war like this, I, I, I think one-off emergency aid packages are, are, are perfectly reasonable. I mean, look, a, a, every conflict should be kind of assessed on its own merit. So, for example, I have actually been quite skeptical um, of U.S. involvement in the Russia-Ukraine war ever since the get-go. And the reason for that is I, I have failed to necessarily see what the compelling U.S. national interest is in that particular conflict for going all in when it comes to Ukraine. Yes, I would prefer Zelensky stay in power as opposed to a Putin place puppet regime there in Kiev. But I, I think that calling for an end to hostility, some sort of diplomatic off ramp is the better U.S. move there as opposed to kind of going all in for escalation. The, the, the point here is that I think this conflict is dramatically different. I mean, look at it from from a from a strictly quote unquote America first perspective. There were 25 Americans at least slaughtered here. There are probably over a dozen Americans currently held hostage in the terror tunnels of Gaza, controlled by this death by this death cult, Hamas. So taken on its own terms, Jenna, this is the worst United States American hostage crisis since the Tehran hostage crisis of 1979. This is an absolute catastrophe for for America right now as well. If you don't think that Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran, I I mean, uh, talking about Iran, Iran is a country, yes, of course they want to annihilate Iran. They want to annihilate America, too. They literally chant in the parliament there in Tehran, they chant death to America, death to Israel. They refer to America as the big Satan, Israel as, as the little Satan. 
So th- this is a clearly compelling case for, for the United States to pick a side in a demonstrable, meaningful way, as opposed, I think, to the Ukraine-Russia conflict, which is a, which is a little murkier here. Now, again, no, no one is calling for American boots on the ground or anything like that. And, and by the way, I think those calls are actually not only misguided, but I think the Israelis would just straight up reject it. Israel has actually been adamant ever since the country was founded that no one other than Israel itself fights its own wars. So I think the folks like Lindsey Graham, who I've heard calling for that, are just simply misguided. But certainly, I think those aircraft carrier groups in the eastern Mediterranean there being a, a strong form of deterrence, that seems to me like like simple common sense. I know that there is JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command, and some Tier 1 hostage evacuation specialists who have been on the ground working hand-in-hand with the Israeli military. Again, this makes sense. There are American hostages there in Gaza. So I, I, I think Congress should basically be giving whatever they can when, when it comes to the, the various munitions demands, when it comes to arms, helmets, I mean, basic supplies there. Unfortunately, to your point, when you ask the question, all of this has been stressed by the U.S. going all in on the Ukraine conflict. And it's there where I disagree with some of my friends, even on the right. I, I see some of my friends saying, oh, you know, the Israel and, and Ukraine causes necessarily go together. You can't be all in on one without the other. I, I respectfully disagree with that. Again, I'm not anti-Ukraine. I'm not pro-Russia. But the, the basic reality of, of economics is that resources are scarce and that when you start kind of pumping out munitions and arms and everything to one conflict, by definition, you're going to drain them down for another conflict. So I, I really, really do worry about that. I do worry that we have gone so all in on Ukraine that we're not necessarily going to be fully there for Israel at a time when they really, really need us more than then they've needed us frankly, in 50 years since the last all-out war there. But we'll, we'll see what happens. I have some friends um, who, who are doing kind of grassroots kind of organizing of arms and munitions. It's a very complicated mess. And hopefully Congress gets its act together. Getting a, getting a speaker in the House would be a nice first step, that's for sure. Yeah, and we'll we'll see what happens at noon today and whether uh, Jim Jordan can get to that 217. And uh, if he can't, then the report, of course, that uh, Representative Mike Johnson is going to launch a bid. Um, either of those men, I think, would be fantastic uh, to be in the speaker's chair. I'm speaking with Josh Hammer, who is the senior editor at large for Newsweek and host of the excellent The Josh Hammer Show, also on Newsweek. And I was also reading um, a piece, Josh, by Michael Oren, who, of course, is the former Israeli ambassador to the United States. And his um, his argument that's titled A Golden Opportunity to Focus on Hezbollah, um, his, his main take here is that instead of the ground assault in Gaza, Israel should first deal with Hezbollah. And so in terms of where Israel goes next and um, what their strategy is, what is your view on that? That seems too cute by half to me, frankly. Um, I mean, this happened from Gaza. Gaza is where the American hostages are currently being held. Now, all of this is obviously extremely complicated. I mean, there, there are reasons that the IDF has not already sent, sent the tanks rolling into Gaza. It's been over a week now. And there, there are numerous reasons for that. One is there's obviously a ton of pressure from the so-called international community, as there always is when it comes to the humanitarian situation although it should be emphasized that the humanitarian situation is solely and exclusively the fault of Hamas's. 
Israel and the United States have been trying to get Egypt to open its border for Gazans fleeing. Hamas has been literally bombing the roads, preventing their own civilians from fleeing because they want them to stay there as human shields. So the blame squarely goes to Hamas for that. But the other reasons for, I think, the IDF's delayed ground invasion is, well, first and foremost, it's the hostage situation. I mean, they're probably trying to use the best of their intelligence to figure out where those hostages are so they don't go in there and start blowing up buildings. And then they find out that they blew up their own civilians, American civilians, European civilians, things like that there. And then there's this massive fear, to Michael Oren's point, that the moment that you actually start the formal invasion of Gaza, that Hezbollah is going to start raining down precision-guided rockets, missiles from the north, from Lebanon. And and that is a bigger threat. This is where Michael Warren, I think, is correct. Hezbollah is actually a much more serious military threat than Hamas is. It's a more sophisticated Islamist outfit. They have much more sophisticated weaponry. They are more closely tied to Iran. They're essentially a, a direct Iranian offshoot. Hamas is more of an indirect offshoot. And and that is a nightmare scenario for the IDF, a, a two-front war. It, it, it's a winnable scenario, of course. Israel, I think, would, would prevail, but it would be incredibly difficult, and it, it would tragically cost a, a lot of lives there. But I, I, I guess as far as kind of order of priority, I just don't understand how it would make sense to start with Hezbollah in the north. What they can do, here's what they can do. There was a lot of chatter that I saw on Twitter yesterday about a lot of Sunni militias basically making this trip from Iraq through um, through Syria, basically getting into command because Syria is also a factor here. Syria borders Lebanon. Bashar al-Assad is a close ally of Iran, is a close ally of Hezbollah, and it looks like a lot of these a lot of these militias are are, are getting into place in Syria as well. So I I, I think. The IDF probably should be more aggressively bombing, for example, Damascus, Aleppo airports, the logical meeting grounds for these Islamist militias trying to prevent Assad and Iran from from congregating there on on a massive third front there in Syria. But at some point, the invasion of Gaza is going to have to happen. It's going to be. It's going to be difficult. I mean, they've probably booby-trapped a lot of it. They, I mean, each floor that you go in, building by building, is going to be difficult. Um, but it, 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 it's going to have to happen. There are going to be civilian casualties. It's going to be ugly under the standard laws of international war. All of those civilian casualties will, will be placed exclusively at the feet of Hamas or putting their own people in harm's way. But I think you have to start in Gaza. Um, But Hezbollah obviously does dramatically complicate the picture. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see uh, how all of this plays out. And of course, we are praying for Israel to make the best strategic strategic decisions. And I'm speaking with uh, Josh Hammer, who is the senior editor at large at Newsweek and host of the Josh Hammer Show. You can follow him on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Josh underscore Hammer. And in just the last uh, two or three minutes I have with you, Josh, um, speaking of praying for Israel, um, everyone here at AFR who is, uh, you know, just, evangelical Christians nationwide, um, loves Israel, supports Israel. How would you say um, that Americans can best support Israel right now in terms of um, just wanting to to lend our, our hearts and prayers? Well, let me just first say that, you know, I, I, I am so grateful, Jenna, for um, the love 
for for Israel um, from the American evangelical community. Many of my best friends are are American evangelicals. Um, I, I, I frankly think that the future of American support for for Israel relies much more heavily on the evangelical community than it relies even on on the American Jewish community. So I'm just so incredibly grateful for for the support of AFR from you and from all my other friends in, in that community. I, as far as concrete places to go to look to help. Um, I have personally donated to United Hatzalah. That's an emergency EMS organization that operates in Israel and some places in the United States. It's basically a, a Jewish volunteer EMS paramedic group, extremely important. So that's United Hatzalah. Again, FIDF is another good organization, Friends of the IDF. Um, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe 100% of, of their donations currently are, are going to directly assist the, the people in the IDF on the front lines there. So those would be kind of two places right off the top of my head that I would recommend donating to right now. And then obviously everyone in their own individual capacity can just kind of, you know, pray and, you know, do what else they can do in their own church, in their own community to make sure the message gets out there that America has to stand by Israel. Very, very hard right now. Yeah, amen to that. And thank you for those recommendations. Josh Hammer, Senior Editor-at-Large and host of The Josh Hammer Show at Newsweek. You can follow him at Josh underscore Hammer. Always appreciate your insights and commentary, my friend, and blessings to you, your fiancé, and all of your family and everyone that you know in Israel. I pray that everyone is safe and continues to remain so. So we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. We want to welcome a new sponsor to American Family Radio, and I hope you give them your full support, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. If you're like most of us, you're feeling the strain of rising healthcare costs. Well, good news, Christian Healthcare Ministries may be the answer you're looking for. CHM is an affordable, faith-based option to traditional healthcare that provides members the freedom to choose doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods since they are not insurance. Can you say Freedom. CHM is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry and has been around for over 40 years, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. They are tried and true and have members in all 50 states and around the world and have covered billions in medical bills. Members not only get advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24 7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. Make the switch today by visiting chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back, and we're continuing to talk about the situation in Israel, and uh, let's go into the United States response. Uh, According to the National Review, 
Yesterday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis helps 270 Americans evacuate Israel. So the Florida governor and presidential candidate Ron DeSantis welcomed a plane of 270 American evacuees, including 91 children, back from Israel on Sunday evening. DeSantis signed an executive order last week authorizing the Florida Division of Emergency Management to carry out, quote, logistical rescue and evacuation operations for Florida residents who are in Israel. The state partnered with Project Dynamo, a veteran-run coalition, to charter the first rescue flight to return to the U.S. Governor DeSantis said in a statement, I am proud of how quickly we've been able to activate resources to do what the federal government could not, get Floridians and other Americans back home, reunited with their families, free of charge. So joining me now to discuss this and more is Carly Atkinson, who is the national spokeswoman for Governor Ron DeSantis's uh, campaign. So Carly, um, thanks so much for joining. And, uh, you know, even in the midst of of all of the naysayers, like I'm thinking of Adam Kitzinger, who uh, snarkily tweeted, um, you're not president, what can you do? You know, something to that effect. Uh, governor DeSantis continues to deliver as governor. And uh, this is why a lot of people would love to see him as president. Because if he can do this for Floridian Americans, imagine what he can do for the rest of the country. Well, good morning, Jenna. Thank you so much for having me on. And that's exactly right. I mean, and I saw uh, Kinzinger's tweet, too. And it's like, try telling Ron DeSantis as governor that he can't do something to help the people of his state. Um, He's always going to get it done. He always steps up and delivers. And, you know, it's really sad. We had a State Department who... Uh, can't organize flights for Americans. They're going to charge Americans um, who are stranded in a war zone. Meanwhile, you know, we're financing at taxpayers' expense illegal aliens coming over our southern border, flying them across the country, putting them in ice hotels, but we can't help um, our own people who are stranded in a war zone. So uh, that was not going to work for DeSantis. And so you're exactly right. Last week, he signed an executive order. And, you know, on that flight, it was most, mostly Floridians, but there were not all of them were Floridians. Um, and DeSantis talked about this. He said that, you know, these are Americans and he's not going to not help all of our people get home. And this is um, you talked about this, but this is just a, an indication, an example of the kind of leader Ron DeSantis is. He's not going to wait around and get listen to all these excuses. He's going to get things done. Um, And so this is just another example of um, in a time of crisis, you know, who stands out the most. And in this case, as is often the case, it was Ron DeSantis. Yeah, we're very grateful for uh, his leadership and and certainly um, for saving those uh, 270 Americans, again, 91 children. And I saw also uh, Florida Representative Corey Mills, who went over uh, to Israel and was instrumental in helping bring um, other Americans safely home. And it's really sad, I think, Carly, when you have um, U.S. representatives and governors who are stepping up more than the administration, which, as you said, um, is wanting to change charge Americans that that, that uh, if they are rescued by the federal government have to be reimbursed. And this this has been a longstanding policy before the Biden administration. But you would think that the, the Biden administration would correct that or at least suspend that policy because of this type of conflict. So um, from the perspective of a potential uh, Governor DeSantis administration or, or a what would be a President DeSantis administration, contrast that 
uh, and, and what his view is on saving Americans as a former uh, veteran of the United States military compared with what we're seeing from the current uh, Biden administration. Well, it's a great point that you bring up. Um, Ron DeSantis did serve in the military, volunteered to serve, uh, trained with Navy SEALs. And this is somebody who uniquely understands and values the no man left behind mindset, right? And so um, that is exactly what he is doing. Um, And again, it's sad. We don't want to be in a situation where we have, you know, the president, the State Department can't get their act together. Um, But that just highlights the importance of the 2024 election um, and elections matter. Our leadership matters. um, And you are seeing the contrast, as you said, between an administration, um, Joe Biden, who had some nice words. But at the end of the day, what matters is not what you say, it's what you do. And that's what sets Ron DeSantis apart from everybody else in this presidential race. He's always going to deliver on the things that he says he's going to do. Um, and a lot of the, we got, he got questions about, you know, how are you going to be able to afford this or what have you? Uh, Florida runs budget surpluses. Uh, Florida's budget, they pay down 25% of their debt Ron DeSantis has. And when you, when you have a government that works like that, you are able to quickly mobilize emergency responses like he did with Hurricane Adalia not too long ago. And like he's doing now, Um, with the Division of Emergency Management um, to get these Americans home. And so that's what good governance looks like, right? Smaller government, uh, cutting taxes, delivering results for the people, and then a crisis, going into crisis response. And we've seen this time and time again from Ron DeSantis. He's always leading. He's always setting the tone, um, whether that's in COVID, whether that's um, with this effort to rescue Americans, um, also drawing a line in the sand that um, with the residents of the field that no Gaza refugees should be allowed into the United States. Um, you saw Donald Trump follow suit and others in the field kind of get behind him. And that's just who he is. He's going to lead. He's going to set the example. He's going to set the tone. Um, he's just a true leader. I'm speaking with uh, the national spokeswoman for Governor Ron DeSantis's presidential campaign, Carly Atchison. And uh, Carly, you mentioned that uh, Governor DeSantis this weekend <clears throat> did take that strong, clear position that the United States should not allow Gaza refugees into the country. And when pressed on uh, Face the Nation, DeSantis said, uh, quote, my position is very clear. Those Gaza refugees, Palestinian Arabs, should go to Arab countries. The U.S. should not be absorbing any of those. And so I just put my stake in the ground. That's where we're going to be. And I think everyone running for president on the Republican side should follow suit, unquote. And he also uh, talked about how uh, being a a principled conservative uh, means that he's not wavering on anything. And and that's what what principled people do is you stand up for uh, what you know to be right and what you believe and uh, and your principles, regardless of the attacks, you're not uh, yielding to what, um, you know, maybe the polls might say, for example. And so um, let's let's contrast that, I think, from um, some of the others that we've seen, for example, um, you know, Nikki Haley, who even though she was the ambassador uh, to the UN, I don't think has come out really strongly in in terms of uh, w- her positions on a lot of this. She hasn't. And like too many of the political elites in this country, they're more concerned with 
virtue signaling than they are doing the right thing. This is common sense. Uh, refugees are not supposed to be, you know, shipped around the world. Uh, these Gaza refugees, where are the Arab countries stepping up? Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, which shares a border with Gaza. That's where these refugees should go, not to the United States of America, half a world away. Um, and you're absolutely right. Um, Nikki Haley was asked about this, and she left the door wide open. She said, Americans have always been able to separate civilians versus terrorists. Well, first of all, that's nonsense. Uh, that's not true. And second of all, um, again, why are we so much more concerned with the virtue signaling than we are with doing the right thing? And by the way, we're having conversations about refugees, and we still have Americans who are, who are stranded in a war zone. So Ron DeSantis uh, was addressing that, was the first one to do so, the first presidential candidate to do so uh, in Iowa on Saturday. He said, absolutely not. It's time to put Americans first. Um, and he stood by that. And it was uh, comical to listen to um, that news anchor press him on it as if this was some, you know, outlandish idea or outlandish p position that we shouldn't be accepting refugees from halfway around the world, who, by the way, um, they are taught from a very young age. And it's sad, but it's true. Let's, let's talk about the truth. They are taught to um, hate Jews. Uh, Israel is not on the map in their textbooks in schools. That's the reality. And so Ron DeSantis is stepping up, talking the truth, stating his position. And, yeah, you saw people get right in behind him. Uh, it took Donald Trump three days to read off a teleprompter what Ron DeSantis had already stated previously. And so, again, just a true leader, a principled leader, not worried about what the media says about him or what the polls are going to say. He does the right thing based on what he knows is the right thing. Um, he's a principled leader. And um, and you see everybody else just kind of following suit. And I think that's a great point, uh, Carly Atchison, that uh, you know Biden is looking at bringing in uh, refugees from Gaza when he's. I doubt going to charge them for their flight. And yet that's what right. he's looking at doing for Americans. I mean, this is utterly absurd when you talk about a total lack of America first policy and putting Americans first and saving Americans actually being the government of the people, by the people, for the people of the United States. I mean, this isn't uh, of the world. And so um, that type of policy is, is completely ridiculous. And that's why we need strong leadership. And I'm grateful for uh, Governor DeSantis stepping up and, you know, others, like I said, Corey Mills out of Florida and, um, you know, many others in Congress who, once we have a speaker, would like to address <laughs> some of these things. And hopefully we'll see how that works out today. But um, in the last just about five minutes I have with you, uh, Carly, um, let's go into the 2024 campaign. And you mentioned Iowa. Um, we're about 90 days, a little under 90 days out from the Iowa caucus. Um, a lot of people are suggesting that, you know, this is already over and uh, the campaign has not done enough to uh, promote uh, who Governor DeSantis is to a lot of the American people. And, um, you know, President Trump's campaign even has like this this timeline of saying, you know, when he's going to drop out. Um, so what's your response to all of the uh, potential naysayers? Well, first of all, on Trump's campaign hitting us every single day, if they were so confident um, I don't think that they would be hitting Ron DeSantis every single day. So they're not. So I, uh, I don't believe that for a second. Uh, look, the, the energy on the ground for Ron DeSantis in Iowa, it's electric. 
Um, and let's take a step back because, and remember, Ron DeSantis is the only candidate who said he was going to visit all 99 counties in Iowa. A lot of these counties are super rural. Um, they're not media markets, so he's not getting in front of a camera for every stop. He is committed to earning every single vote on the ground. Um, and what that looks like from the national perspective is it doesn't move national polls. Um, you're not seeing that work. It's not flashy. It doesn't get a lot of headlines. And so, yeah, this narrative that uh, something is amiss in Iowa is able to run away with it. But when uh, when he is on the ground, when people hear him talk, it's electric. The kind of crowds he's turning out in these really, really rural counties is in the thousands. And that just doesn't happen normally if people aren't excited about you. And so we have the best ground game in Iowa And this is a state that's a caucus state. And so you have to have the organization to get people to ultimately show up for you on what is sure to be a freezing uh, night in January and sit in a gym for three hours uh, and caucus for you. And that requires a lot of work on the back end. We're the only candidate who's really been able to do that. You're seeing uh, Trump play follow the leader basically in Iowa, stepping up his ground game in Iowa um, but I would I would submit that it might be too late for that. You cannot stand up the kind of organization that we have right now overnight. Um, and so Iowa is um, we're feeling very good about it. Again, super organized, best ground game. Uh, the feeling on the ground there is electric and uh, people are really, really uh, liking what Ron DeSantis has to say there. And and certainly the ground game and going to all 99 counties has been very impressive. And uh, DeSantis just yesterday filed to participate in Nevada's uh, GOP caucus. And so what about the ground game in other states? Um, some of the other uh, criticism, frankly, of the campaign has been, OK, great. You know, you're super organized in Iowa. But what about everywhere else? Sure. I think, well, it's important to remember how the calendar works. Right. And so some people focus on, you know, three, two, one. We are going Iowa first, then it's New Hampshire, then it's South Carolina, and then it's Nevada. Um, you bring up a good point in Nevada. We have um, the governor has filed to run in the caucus, which is take, going to take Donald Trump head on, go toe to toe. Not every candidate is willing to do that. And that just shows the confidence we have in, in our operation in this race. We know we have the best candidate. And so let's let the people decide. Um, I think that uh, you're going to start to see uh, the the candidates whittle down after Iowa. I think that will make it a completely different race. Um, but you have to you can't uh, change kind of the trajectory of everything if you don't perform in Iowa. Right. And so that's been our strategy. We're confident in that strategy. But I would also say he spent a lot of time in a lot of the other states as well. In New Hampshire, for instance, uh, you know, don't forget about the Fourth of July parades where him and the First Lady were walking in the rain. Trump was nowhere to be found. A lot of the House parties, he was the first major candidate to file in the state of New Hampshire most recently. Uh, he was the first candidate to file in South Carolina. There are still some candidates who have not filed in South Carolina. Uh, yeah, well, Carly. And uh, we're going to have to leave it there, but, um, you know, but that's great commentary. And and I think you're absolutely right that we're going to see kind of the whittling down of the field after Iowa. We'll see how that goes. Uh, But we're out of time for Jenna Ellis in the morning. can always reach me and my team, Jenna at AFR.net. Make it a great day and I'll see you tomorrow morning.
The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest-serving health cost-sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org/afr. That's chministries.org/afr.